I'm kind of bursting onto the scene and teaching and preaching. He's been for the first about 30 years kind of secluded in Nazareth. A pretty ordinary life for a Messiah. Probably in something of a middle class, lower middle class family, the son of a carpenter. Maybe there are always whispers about Jesus father whether it was joseph or someone else we don't really know too much about those early days of jesus life but what happens in the wilderness shows him approved without a doubt for what god would have him do let's look uh, at luke chapter 4 and again like last week i'll have you read the red bolded uh, portion of the passage And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, Amen. So this is the first temptation or test or trial that Jesus is faced with here in the wilderness, likely near the end of the 40-day time period. It may seem at first glance that this is the temptation to turn stones into bread. But before the devil tempts Jesus with that challenge, he prefaces the actual meat or heart of the temptation with something of a taunt. Did you catch that? If you are. I mean, if we're being honest, it doesn't seem that hard, especially for us, to resist the temptation to turn stones into bread, to essentially not do a magic trick, right? Like, no problem, I I can't do it anyway, so no big deal. But resisting a taunt that goes to the fundamental heart of Jesus' identity, if you are the Son of God, or to put it, more personally, that goes to our identities. When that is in play, it is a whole different story. What is implied by those words, if you are, or what the natural conclusion is, is prove it. Prove it. If you are, then do X, Y, or Z. So the temptation isn't to do a magic trick, to, to, uh, uh, to, to put it casually. Instead, it is to prove identity. And there are plenty of outward voices, and I, I think you see this most often, in fact. Whether it is the Braves who, boy, we sure hope in my house it's the Braves who get one more win and win the World Series, 
Or if those cheating Astros, I'm sorry to Houston fans, if those Astros find a way to win three in a row and win, you know what someone on the team will say? They'll, they'll, they'll have the, the, the folk down there on the field, and, and no matter which team wins, someone will say, nobody gave us a chance. You remember, you, you've heard that. Almost regardless of, of who wins, if there's a championship won, there will be the, the, the refrain of the champion will be, we had to prove it. Huh? We had to prove it. But sometimes there are inward voices, not outward voices asking us to prove who we are or that uh, our, our team is, is capable of winning a championship or whatever. More often, it is, it is inward in our own thoughts and in our own minds. If you are able, if you really cared, if you were a real man, if you were, a re were really a good wife, if you are such a good parent, if you weren't so lazy, on and on and on and on. So sometimes we, outside of 40 days in the wilderness, carry around similar messages, I think. If you will prove your identity. The temptation for Jesus to prove it, interestingly, comes right after, in fact, just a chapter before, and we glanced over this last week, right after Jesus' identity has been confirmed in the gospel. He's just been baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin, John the Baptist. And as he comes out of the water, the, literally the voice of God speaks over him, proclaiming, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hmm? Now there is proof of identity if it's ever existed. And yet this temptation, this test is, is real. And maybe it's even more impactful or difficult for Jesus than we realize. Because for 400 years, Israel, okay, now we're going from the, the specific moment in time when Jesus' identity is confirmed and tested by the devil Let's, let's take a big step back. For 400 years, Israel had been waiting for the arrival of the Chosen One. And Jesus was that one. And he was just at the precipice of beginning to proclaim that and demonstrate that according to the timing laid out by the Father. Okay, And the devil comes to him and says, speed it up! Do it now. If you are, then prove it. Do it. If you are the one everyone has been waiting for. Think of the pressure. <laughs> Israel was waiting for a liberator. A warrior king. A true political and earthly messiah. Just proclaimed the Messiah by John the Baptist, not to mention the voice of God himself. Along comes the devil saying, prove it. 
Prove it. So within these temptations, whoops, within these temptations, the larger question has to do with who is actually in charge. Stones into bread. The implication is that I am in charge. I have to fend for myself. We'll look next week at the temptation offered by the devil to Jesus to bow down and worship. The devil is in charge. Evil is in charge. And then the temptation to throw yourself down from the temple so that the angels will save you, well, that probably has to do with fate or chance being in charge. But the implicit message in each of these is, whether it's myself or yourself or the devil himself or fate or chance or things completely out, whoops, sorry, went too far in there. Completely outside of our control. The message, the, the heart of the temptation is that God is not in charge. That God the Father is not in charge and maybe shouldn't be trusted. And so specifically with the stones in the bread and this question of identity and provision, Jesus having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, the temptation and maybe the way that we can relate to the temptation since none of us can turn stones into bread anyway, it represents or is under uh, is uh, uh, the underlying thought is the faulty thinking that if I don't do X, Y, or Z, it's not going to happen. Hmm? This temptation to, to just do more and that it all depends on you or me. Now, obviously, there's a distinction between being responsible with our tasks and the belief that all of life depends on us. When we begin to think or begin to live like all of life be, uh, depends on us, then what happens is we begin to think or whispers enter into our thinking that God is under-functioning, that God is not doing enough, and that we have to do it all. We have to take care of ourselves. So what did Jesus do? What could he have done? He could have just done it. Could have just turned the stones into bread. In fact, in a few chapters, he's going to multiply loaves and fishes. So he was sure capable of doing what was presented to him. He could have turned inward and began questioning himself or even questioning the Father. He could have argued with the devil. <laughs> he had just been pronounced as the Son of God. He had evidence on his side, even the voice of God itself, but he didn't do any of that. Instead, as you well know, he quoted Scripture. Yeah, small. Sorry about that. He quoted scripture. The quotation is from Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to read it. It's up there, but it's really tough to... Oh, wait, hold on. Elijah taught me how to do this. 
Oh, except it's two. <laughs> that didn't do any good. All right, I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Moses is telling this to the people of Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus, when the devil comes to him and says, prove it, rely on yourself. If you are the son of God, if you are the Messiah, do this act. God's not going to do it for you. You're going to have to do it on your own. Jesus immediately thinks back to the history of God's people and God's demonstration of faithfulness to them. From Deuteronomy 8, Moses is warning the people that their success when they enter the promised land will tempt them to forget the lessons they learned in the wilderness over their 40 years there. Their lessons of learning to be completely dependent on God. He knew that they might be tempted toward pride and self-sufficiency to do it on their own. Instead, Moses appealed to them to recall the way God <coughs> excuse me, had provided for them day by day. So within his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus, in essence, sings the song of God's faithfulness and provision to generations past who were also in the wilderness. So in his response to the devil, when the devil says, prove it, prove your identity, he does it by not doing anything. He does it by proving his dependency on the Father. You ever heard the, the phrase, proving the dough in baking? Proving the dough. It's the process whereby the dough rests. At that point in the baking task, there's nothing to be done by the baker. All the ingredients have been provided and mixed, and now the yeast begins to do the hidden work. So I think the temptation here, this initial temptation in the wilderness, is for us to try to do more based on some sort of thinking that it all depends on us. What's the opposite of that? Faith. Faith. 
believing that God will take care of us in his time. Faith gives us an opportunity to trust. It's learning that we don't have to be the ones to make it all happen. To rest. We know the word for it. Sabbath, right? Sabbath. I have something of a love-hate relationship with the idea of Sabbath. I remember sitting in seminary classes and the professors, men and women who had walked with God for a number of years, most of whom had been involved in ministry for decades, would lay out for students the importance of Sabbath in the life of a minister and in encouraging that in the life of a congregation, of resting and relying on God and then they would inevitably say, and we would like you to engage in the practice and then write like a five to ten page paper about it. And I would think, come on. That's the, that's the opposite of Sabbath, right? I need, I need to do better at Sabbath. It's the art of stopping. Hmm? The art of stopping. Sometimes with a very intentional focus on prayer and rejuvenation of not only our spiritual lives, but also our physical lives. It demonstrates a trust in God's ability and in the wisdom of God, even in the story of creation. To include in our lives a rhythm of rest. It acknowledges that you and I are not in charge. And because of that, we can rest. It's, in, it's remembering that our identity is not tied to what we do or how much we produce. It's foundationally based on the identity that God speaks over us as his people who must trust and rest in him. So as God's people who sometimes feel, most often likely within our own inner monologue, the temptation to prove it, we're invited to rest. Not because we've done all the work, not because we've earned it, but because we're invited to believe the truth that we are not in charge. And not only can we, but we must place our trust in him.